Hello, it's John Dennis on Thursday the 14th of January. Today, a major aid operation is underway after a massive earthquake causes tragedy on an unimaginable scale in Haiti. Uh, this talk of three million people in need of emergency aid and food supplies. So how the international community is going to be able to respond, given the lack of infrastructure there, remains a mystery to me and to most of us. In other news today, the reaction from China to Google's threat to stop censoring its search results warning of widespread fraud in the coming general election. Where there is so much riding on individual constituencies, there is a greater temptation to cheat. And we hear from the fans making English football's longest away trip in the snow. So you've come all the way from Cornwall to Plymouth and then you're going all the way to Newcastle. Yeah. Pretty keen. Pretty stupid. <laughs> Guardian Daily with John Dennis on guardian.co.uk First, our main story. In Haiti, the United Nations says thousands of people are believed to have been killed in a seven-magnitude earthquake. Tens of thousands have lost their homes, and the International Red Cross says up to three million people could be affected. Among the buildings destroyed by the tremor and its aftershocks were hospitals, the UN peacekeeping headquarters, and Haiti's presidential palace. Here's what some of the people who witnessed the quake said at the airport. I was right at the, at the gate. About to be boarding on the plane. Right there inside the building. And when, when this thing happened and the building start falling, the building start shaking and people start flying, you know, passport, boarding pass, shoes, everything. <laughs> everything. Um, boarding uh, gate. And then when the shake, you know, start. Then everybody, you know, panic and uh, run away, you know. We try to find, you know, somewhere to get out. The international community has begun trying to get aid to the people in Haiti. Bill Clinton, the UN's special envoy for Haiti, said his office would do whatever it could to help the country recover and rebuild. And Barack Obama offered America's assistance. I have directed my administration to respond with a swift, coordinated and aggressive effort to save lives. The people of Haiti will have the full support of the United States in the urgent effort to rescue those trapped beneath the rubble and to deliver the humanitarian relief, the food, water, and medicine that Haitians will need in the coming days. In that effort, our government, especially USAID and the Departments of State and Defense, are working closely together and with our partners in Haiti, the region, and around the world. Gareth Owen, the emergency director for Save the Children, told The Guardian about the aid operation. Major hotels and other aid agencies have been damaged. Our own office there has had some damage, but it's still intact. But people spent the night outside. So now that we've gathered pretty much everyone together and we established that everyone's OK, the next stage is to really you know, launch the response, which is you know, going into full swing now. We've already launched an appeal for £3 million here in the UK, which is, you know, based on my experience of 20 years of responding to these situations, you know, it's, it's definitely that kind of problem. I mean, the, the earthquake was, was shallow. It was near to Port-au-Prince, which is a very uh, densely populated um, city built on hillsides. I've been there myself. You know, essentially, it's, you know, it's a, a, you know, Port-au-Prince is the largest slums in, 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 the, in the Northern Hemisphere. So it's really people live in very close proximity. Four out of five Haitians are very, very poor um, you know, the basic conditions there, even prior to this, uh, are, are very, very, uh, you know, it's very, life is hard there if your children, uh, you know, in Haiti, in any case, very, you know, many children don't go to school. Uh, and the city is really, really, you know, 
so, so densely packed. And one of the problems we see often with this kind of earthquake, we saw it um, a few months ago in Indonesia, is that you get big landslides. You know, we, you know, we have to assume at this stage that there's been major loss of life and a lot of injury. And so, very, very serious situation indeed. I asked Rory Carroll, our Latin America correspondent, about the scale of the earthquake. The scale seems to be horrific. The magnitude 7 earthquake is the biggest and most powerful to strike Port-au-Prince in over two centuries. And now what we have is a city of more than 3 million people densely packed into mostly fragile slums. And the reports coming out of Port-au-Prince are absolutely horrific. Communication services down. It's also uh, presenting enormous difficulties getting aid through. Yes, well the airport certainly was shut um, because the control tower cracked um, and planes that were taking off just uh, as you, uh, just after the earthquake uh, hit so that they thought a bomb had, had uh, struck the airport. However, uh, it seems that in the last few hours the airport has reopened at least to emergency flights and so military flights um, and humanitarian uh, uh, cargoes are now in fact beginning to arrive. What's been the international reaction to this? Uh, universal uh, support for um, of solidarity and pledges uh, of aid. Everybody from the United States to Venezuela to the European Union, France and Britain are all promising uh, to send large amounts of aid as quickly as possible. Uh, some is in, in cash form. Uh, the Israelis are sending uh, an elite uh, team of, of doctors and engineers and so forth. So it seems that the international community is girding up for very, uh, a very large-scale humanitarian effort. Haiti, of course, unfortunately, has been uh, subject to many natural disasters over the years. Yes. Uh, now, this is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, um, which had the even more misfortune of being st- struck by four hurricanes and tropical storms uh, d- just uh, late last year. And so this um, really ravages the country. And when I was last there um, on, on a visit, there was people eating mud cakes. Um, and this is what they were using is a type of clay using to, which they used to supplement their diet. And this was even before the storms that hit. So, I mean, that is the level of poverty you have there so now that they, they just have no infrastructure to deal uh, with any any form of disaster on this scale so I think what we're going to see in the next few days and weeks is going to be an extreme uh, emergency um, on a massive scale uh, there's talk of three million people in need of emergency aid and food supplies so how the international community is going to be able to respond given the lack of infrastructure there remains a mystery to me and to most of us Rory Carroll and there's full coverage at guardian.co.uk slash Haiti. Also on the Guardian's website today. I'm Hilary Osborne, editor of guardian.co.uk money. Coming up today on the site, we offer you 10 ways to make money in an hour. We tell you why gas bills are expected to be £70 more this month. And we look at the latest from the mortgage market. That's all coming up on guardian.co.uk slash money. Google's decision to stop censoring search results on its Chinese service has been welcomed by Chinese bloggers. I wrote the open letter to Google founders three years ago, and uh, um, I have um, precisely predicted today's uh, situation of Google. But I think Google has um, eventually has made the right decision uh, to fight back uh, based on their principles. It's going to be quite tough for Google to operate in China. They may be able to stay, but they're certainly going to be under a lot more scrutiny and uh, face further hostility from the government after this. After Google made this decision, I think the ball already kicked off, kick, kick off to 
to the Chinese government's side. I, I cannot predict the, the decision that Chinese government will make. Will they, you know, take a big revenge on Google? That means they will shut down. Whether they will shut down their there are all the Google services, like uh, Gmail, Gtalk, I don't know. Google acted after a cyber attack aimed at gathering information on Chinese human rights activists. And Google's not the only Western site affected by a crackdown on the internet over the past year in China. Twitter, Facebook and YouTube have also been hit. Tanya Brannigan's in Beijing for The Guardian with details of China's reaction to Google's threat. What's interesting is that they've put out quite a cautious statement uh, issued through the official news agency Xinhua, which says basically they want to know more about this and they're looking into it. So they certainly haven't come out with any sort of denunciation of Google. Instead, they've come out with something very measured, which in a sense may buy both sides a bit of time. What would China be like without Google? Well, that's a very good question. Um, I mean, one thing is that Google is nowhere near as dominant in China as it is in other places. Uh, so... For example, I think Google has around a third of the search market here, um, and it's completely trounced, really, by Baidu, which is the homegrown rival. Um, now, in that sense, you could argue it might not make much difference when it went away. On the other hand, internet experts such as Rebecca McKinnon uh, have pointed out when they did their research, it seemed as if Google censored rather less um, than other search engines did. Will the government be embarrassed at all about these revelations about the cyber attacks on Google? The statement from Google is rather odd in that it, it seems as if it's seeking to imply that the uh, attacks were linked to the government. It talks about it being sophisticated, uh, originating in China. Um, but then when they have been pressed on it um, in interviews, they've said quite clearly, oh, well, we're not actually saying that the government's done this. You know, they can't be sure who's done it. And so it... it Clearly, the sort of the implication of their statement seems to be um, that they're linking the government to it in some ways. But then they say, no, no, we're not saying one way or another that it's state-sponsored or that the state sort of support this kind of activity at all. Tanya Brannigan. This is Guardian Daily. I'm John Dennis. Well, many of you will have tales of woe about getting from A to B in the snow. Well, yesterday, a possibly insanely dedicated band of Plymouth Argyle fans made an 819-mile round trip to see their football team play Newcastle United in last night's FA Cup third round replay. Sadly for them, it wasn't enough to spur Argyle to victory. The Guardian's Stephen Morris met some of them on their journey north. Give me your name, if that's all right. Brian Holden. So how far have you come? Um, 24 miles into Plymouth and then all the way up to here. So you've come all the way from Cornwall to Plymouth and then you're going all the way to Newcastle. Yeah. Pretty keen. Pretty stupid. <laughs> have you had to take time off work as well? Yeah. So how many days off work? Today and tomorrow. So two days off work. On the coach 24 hours? Yeah. So why do you do it? Uh, can't answer that. <laughs> Just enjoy it. May I take your name, sir? My yeah, name is Peter Hall. Peter Hall? Yes, I and was an employee with the club for 37 years until last year, and then I became vice president of the club. Oh, I see. Yes. May I ask your age, if you don't mind? I'm eight, I'll be 83 next month, all being well. <laughs> 83 next <laughs> yeah, month. Yeah. And how are you enjoying the trip so far? <laughs> Very good, nice and warm and uh, comfortable. I go to all the away games and uh, well, I miss Newcastle away on the league match. 
because my grandson, he used to play Brago, he's in the show business now and he was in a variety show in London, so I had to put the family first. So you set out at what time? Um, half past eight. Half past eight from yes. Plymouth this yes. morning. Yes. It's now lunchtime with Strangham in Worcestershire. Yes. And you've got a long time on that yeah, coach still. Yes, I know. Yeah, it's a long way. <laughs> Just open that the match is on and we'll get up there and, and we'll get a win at least. Go, 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 come back, hopefully. <laughs> you enjoying the trip so far? So far, yes. <laughs> One of many. One of many. Do you go everywhere with them? Everywhere, yeah. yeah. But this one's a bit special. 24 hours, is it? We've already been up there once, haven't we? So it's no different. I mean, we've been to Carlisle and back in one day. So, you know, we've done it all, haven't we? Well, it's different because of that snow out well, there. It, yes, that is a little bit different. We, I think this is the first time we've ever been up in so much snow. Um, so, yes, it does give it a... As long as we can get there and the game can be played, it's going to be worthwhile. What do you say? Well, we've got to go for it, haven't we? We've got to get there. I want to see the ground. The election watchdog warns today that there could be more allegations of fraud in this year's general election than in any previous poll. Polly Curtis is our Whitehall correspondent. She told me why the Electoral Commission thinks the coming election is particularly vulnerable. It's the combination of there being local elections and those local elections being in large metropolitan boroughs, which historically are among the most vulnerable to malpractice. And then the general election being so closely fought. Um, and it's really where there is so much riding on individual constituencies. There is a greater temptation to cheat. And, you know, people get carried away and do things they wouldn't do normally when, when the stakes are that high. So it's the high profile, high kind of pressure nature of this general election. And it's also the fact that there are going to be a very high number of new candidates who won't necessarily know the rules and won't have officials and advisors who know the rules because it's not just looking at kind of individual voter fraud but it's also looking at the conduct of campaigns as well and there's a lot of kind of uh, some quite archaic kind of rules that um that, that they have to just know and, and new candidates won't necessarily know them. This comes in a report that says there wasn't much fraud in, in last year's local and European elections by the Commission. That's right. There was It was very low, but they do... I mean, it was about 48 cases, 115-odd um, complaints, um, and in the context of 22 million votes, um, that's not much to worry about. But they do stress that last year's elections, kind of um, small local elections and the European elections, are not the kind of elections that that attract kind of temptations to cheat because they are not as high stakes as as a general election or the big kind of metropolitan boroughs that are going to be um, going to the polls this year. So could we be looking at uh, legal challenges and and sort of the UK equivalent of hanging chads that we saw in the 2000 uh, US election? Well, that's exactly the nightmare scenario the Electoral Commission is is desperately trying to avoid, and that's why they are highlighting this now. Um, And that's also why they've worked so closely with the police um, in the last year or so. Polly Curtis in Westminster. 
Our producers today were Phil Maynard and Tim Maybe. I'm John Dennis. Thanks for listening. 